Welcome back. I feel like we haven't really been away. No, we have not, because you know why we're here? It's part two time. (laughs) The live event. We're bringing you the second half of Podcast Academy. Where we cover the other two panelists. I hope you've listened. If you haven't listened, you have to go back. You have to go back and listen to us talk about Kieran Thomas and Ike. Shreese Kondaraja. Yeah, and the two processes they talk about that are pretty much the same, but different because they help you get through the creative process. Yes, how to like make it through the dark forest, survive a creative crisis of confidence, and like how to put your story together. So we're going to talk about Michael Garofalo, who formerly works with StoryCorps. Um, he's a Peabody winner, and hearing him speak was phenomenal. Yes. It was also very interesting. You can tell that he's done voice work <laughs> in some way but he he talks about finding your sources right but yeah. beyond google you know because google can be this very dark deep spiral <laughs> to the internet um and then with your s- sources also finding stories within that and he covers a very interesting story about sparrows being massacred in china just killing sparrows randomly becomes this very intricate and interesting story about a teenager who is experiencing this at the same time but didn't necessarily know the gravity of his actions. And I think it speaks to the larger picture of finding something you're interested in than really honing into it. Let's hear it. One of my favorite things to do as a producer is to bring voices from the past alive. I love telling stories about hidden histories, um, forgotten histories, or um, players in a historical event that you may not have ever heard from before. Um, I love bringing people into a moment or a time or a place that they haven't experienced. I think there's a magic in that that's really unique to audio, actually. Um, And so tonight I thought I'd talk about a pretty unglamorous part of, of making that magic, which is finding somebody to tell a story. Um, if you're not going to tell it yourself, which is, you know, in my style, it's, it's not. I've always done first-person stories. I did that at StoryCorps. That's what I'm doing at Kickstarter. And it's what I'm doing with uh, my new project uh, about animals, which is called Just Animals. So um, if I can't find somebody to tell a first-hand account, I'm probably going to kill the story. I'm just not going to do it. And, you know, as an aside, that's another big part of my process is killing stories. You know, I probably kill about five out of every six stories that I, that I start. That's like part of the key to, to doing really good work is being really critical of yourself and your own ideas. But anyway, um, so I love the challenge of trying to find somebody who took part in some obscure historical event. Um, you know, I once found one of the 3,000 people who were at the last Brooklyn Dodgers game at Ebbets Field in 1957. Um, I found survivors of, of the worst school disaster in U.S. history, which happened in 1929 in rural Michigan, um, even after being told by a historian that nobody was alive. Um, who could have, who could talk to me about it. Um, and tonight, um, I'm going to play you a little bit of a story from Just Animals that had a hard-to-find storyteller, and then I'll pull back the curtain on that long journey uh, to getting the interview. And uh, this is a work in progress, so I've never played it publicly before, so go easy on me. Um, the story goes back to 1958, uh, when China declared war on sparrows, um, those little brown birds you see hopping around everywhere, those guys. You've seen them? Yes? Okay. So uh, does it, has anybody ever heard of this before? No? Okay. So it was part of uh, Mao Zedong's uh, Great Leap Forward, which was a series of campaigns that were meant to rapidly modernize China um, and boost things like agriculture, manufacturing, and, and public health. And as part of that last thing, they had something called uh, the Campaign to Eliminate the Four Pests. Uh, 
And the four pests were mosquitoes, flies, rats, all make sense, right? And sparrows. The argument was that sparrows ate a lot of grain um, and they were threatening the human food supply. So we had to wipe, wipe them out. Uh, as we learn over the course of the story, this was not true, actually. So the, the idea was that everybody in China, it was a mass mobilization campaign, was supposed to take part in this. Uh, so this was like a full-on war on sparrows. Um, and I remember sitting in a coffee shop with StoryCorps founder Dave Isay and telling him about this story, and he laughed and said, there's no way you'll ever find somebody to tell it. Um, and that's all I needed. Uh. In 1958, I was 16 years old, and I took part in the sparrow eradication campaign. So uh, that is Sheldon Lau. Um, he's a retired professor. He lives in San, San Diego, California, and he came to the U.S. in the 80s for graduate school, um, but he grew up in Beijing. And that's Sheldon there on the right. This is actually during the Sparrow campaign. Um, so I'm going to play you a little bit of his story, and then I'm going to tell you about how I found him. So Sheldon first heard about the plan at school. A, a communist official showed up one morning. Um, all the students were called into the uh, schoolyard, and uh, he explained that Chairman Mao had declared sparrows enemy of the people, and uh, that schools were going to close. Everything in, this, in the country would come to a stop. People wouldn't go to work so that they could go out and hunt sparrows. Um, and the whole country basically came to a standstill for several days were so excited. Of course, for us, it was like a holiday. It was like a festival. It was like Chinese New Year. It's better than Chinese New Year. We didn't have to go to school. <laughs> you know, you <laughs> could spend time, you know, uh, hanging around, uh, killing birds. <laughs> so, um, Remember, the goal here was to wipe out all the sparrows. So you could destroy their nests, you could crush their eggs, you could poison them or shoot them, and people did all of those things. But if you were going to pick them off one by one, that was going to take way too long. So what they needed was a strategy where they could kill tons of birds all at once. So uh, they came up with something, um, and it was basically just to keep the sparrows flying. Whenever they tried to stop on the roof or stop on the trees, People would make noise to scare them away. The birds got so tired they couldn't fly anymore, so they would be exhausted and they would die. You use anything you could find to make noise, like a heating, dustpans, cooking pans, music instruments, anything that could make noise. And school actually gave us firecrackers to scare them away. Most people were on the streets all day from early morning to sunset. Hundreds of thousands all out on the street. It was so noisy. It was like in the ballpark, you know, in a stadium when someone hit a home run. It was deafening. And the birds, birds, after half day, you know, many of them started falling from the sky, like stone. And they claim like, what, 400,000 sparrows were killed in three days. This killing sparrows, today you think it's so stupid, it's <laughs> ridiculous, yeah? How could people be so naive 
to be convinced that sparrows were animals. But in Beijing, almost everybody joined this campaign. Even the scientists in Chinese Academy of Sciences, many of them were specialists. So you would uh, assume they knew better. But you know, during that crazy period of time, even they didn't agree, they wouldn't dare to speak up. So then the story becomes about why people actually got involved in this and did it. Um, we're going to stop there. Um, but where we end up with the story is that you know wiping out all the sparrows meant that there were no predators for insects that actually did eat a lot of grain. Um, which then destroyed a lot of food stores, which were becoming really important because if you know anything about Chinese history, the Great Famine was about to start. Um, and so 40 million people died over the next few years. Um, and so it's sort of a, a tale about uh, hubris and, and nature. But let's talk about how I found Sheldon. So this is what I started out with knowing, okay? This event happened in China 60 years ago. So the person I was gonna find would need to be, have been a kid at the time, right? They would be in their 70s or 80s now um, uh, to still be around and to be able to talk about it. And for me, the person would have to speak English because I don't like to do translations. Um, there's just something about the actual act of like dipping down the real voice that I don't, I don't like um, aesthetically or sort of philosophically. Um, so it would need to be somebody who could speak English. Here's what I didn't know, the names of anybody involved because it was just everybody in China, right? Um, and if I found somebody, would this event have even meant anything to them, right? Like, what, would it have any significance? Would they remember it or would it just be like, yeah, there was this weird thing I did when I was a kid? Um, so step one was Google. And if you take anything away from my talk, please take this away. Google can only take you so far. It is not how you're going to find most of your stuff, OK? Um, it got me nowhere, uh, but it's still where I started. Um, you know, search terms are really important with Google. It's not just searching Sparrow War participated, right? Like what I would do is I would search in quotations, first person statements. Um, I remember killing sparrows. I uh, took part in, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, actual things that somebody might say in an interview somewhere um, that might pop up. Um, because what I'm looking for is somebody who, I'm looking for a name, right? Somebody who, who I can then contact. Um, I did find uh, a couple of you know, other pieces in, in other publications that talked about this, but they were mostly just regurgitating the same facts over and over. Um, there were no interviews involved. So uh, next I went to archives. The New Yorker has a great archive. The New York Times has a great archive. Um, and if you have a public library card in New York City, you can access all kinds of stuff. And you guys are students, so you can access pretty much anything. So what I was looking for here was any contemporary reporting. Right? Maybe somebody would be quoted in a news account that um, I could see if they were still alive. Um, I only found one thing that was in the New Yorker, but the author had died a long time ago. Um, so that was a dead end. So next was Reddit. And Reddit is, is a sort of secret weapon for finding stories. Um, because people often in the comments will post their own personal stuff. Um, and uh, it's usually pretty easy to contact somebody who posts on Reddit. Um, you have to slog through a lot of garbage. Um, but uh, what I did find was a link to a book by a Chinese academic, um, An Oral History of Growing Up in Mao's China. Um, I found her. She was in Boston. I called her. 
Um, we talked for about an hour, and she gave me a lot of great stuff. But uh, and if I hadn't found Sheldon, I probably would have used her. But she was really like, uh, she had trouble talking personally about it. You know, this was sort of just a blip for her, and she was more interested in it in a historical context. Um, so after Reddit, uh, I realized that I had to go a lot wider than just the Sparrow War, right? Like looking for somebody who took part in that wasn't going to get me anywhere. So instead I just said, all right, I just need somebody who was the right age who lived in China at this time, uh, mainland China. So, um, so that's what I did next. Um, I went to social media and I just posted a call out. Um, and I actually got a pretty good lead here. This led me to a young woman who's a translator in, in um, documentary film, who's from Beijing, but she lives in Toronto. And her parents were the exact right age, and she was about to go back to Beijing. So she was going to interview them for me. But it was going to be in Chinese, and it was going, and they told her over the phone that they didn't really remember much. So I was going to do it anyway, um, but it really was a dead end. So next, and this is a quick little anecdote. Um, I, I, I once was on a, I, I'm on some radio listservs, and somebody once posted something that was like, hey guys, I need to find somebody. I, I know the guy's name, I know what town he lives in, but he doesn't seem to have a social media profile. Any ideas how I can get in touch with him? So only people like over a certain age are gonna laugh about this. And so I wrote to the guy, and I was like, call 411. Like, you know his name and you know what town he lives in. You can get his phone number really easily. So that was the next thing, is pick up the phone. And um, I just started making calls. Um, I used Trello. Does anybody use that? Um, just to organize my work. And so I, went, I started calling senior centers in neighborhoods in New York City where there's a large Chinese population. Um, and I was going to go visit them. I uh, found Sheldon in the meantime, though. Um, I called uh, the Asia Society. I called the Chinese Cultural Council. I called um, all, the, uh, all the major universities in New York, including NYU. I called the modern languages departments um, and got on you know, email listservs and that sort of thing, all of which got me nowhere. But you've got to do it, right? This is, this is the process. Um, and then lastly, I got lucky. So, you know, whenever I'm working on a story, I read really deeply, way, way wider than I would just for, like, the narrow bit of the story that I might tell. Um, and I picked up this great book called Sparrow by Kim Todd. And um, in it, she talks about, she quoted this guy named Sheldon Lau. And I went to the bibliography, and I found the name of his book. I found the publisher and uh, wrote to them. Um, and then I just wanted to show you sort of uh, the, the email exchange of how we got got here. Basically, um, on the phone, and you'll get this a lot, they were like, well, we don't hand out you know, people's contact information, so all you can kind of do is give them yours and hope they get in touch. And then you can pester them until they do. Um, so as you can see, Sheldon had retired, so she didn't know if she could still get in touch with him. Um, so uh, if you look at the, top, the second paragraph in the top email, this is where it gets good. So I understand that I can't give, you can't give out contact info, but if you tell me where his last position was, you know, I've found sometimes the department administrators can contact emeritus professors easily. I'd be happy to take that route. She doesn't respond. So later that day, <laughs> I write back, hi, Carol, some Googling has turned up a recently retired professor at UC San Marcos named Sheldon Lau. Is that your author? Um, <laughs> and uh, she writes back and says yes. Um, and uh, then finally, she hears back from Sheldon, and he's excited to do it. Um, and I actually flew to San Diego and spent a couple days with him. 
and that was that. And I was, he was the only storyteller I needed. Um, so, you know, what I really encourage you to do um, is, you know, uh, podcasting, a lot of it, and some of it's really good, is chat format, right? You like sit down with your friends or somebody you think is cool and like you just talk to them. Um, and what I would really love to have more people do is go out in the world with one of these and talk to strangers and talk to people who are different than you. And, you know, the, basically the takeaway from this is you can find anybody if you just spend some time and, and have the right tools, um, all of which are free. Um, so, yeah, that's it. Um, what I appreciate about, so this happened like when we heard Carrie Ann speak and I had this realization, oh, like audio producers are like writers. Yeah. And listening to Michael talk, I was like, oh, audio producers also have to be immune to no, just like film producers and any other kind of producer, right? Of course. You got to be able to hustle and not take no for an answer. Um, and so that tees us up perfectly for Megan, who is all about that hustle Absolutely. I loved what she shared. I was in awe of Megan the whole time. Oh, my goodness. I don't want to give it away. Like, I feel like they deserve to hear it. Absolutely. And then we'll, like, And then we'll unpack. So I'm going to talk about the process between basically getting out of your closet and getting in front of a network because that's what happened to me. And I started in Maine. Uh, working at this restaurant as a waitress. I was also at, I was also doing retail at L.L. Bean. I write New Year's resolutions down every single year. And instead of writing down a list of goals, I decided to write a syllabus for myself. I had already graduated college and I wasn't in a program. I didn't have enough money to go to graduate school or to go to a specialized radio um, certificated program. So I decided to make my own seven page document <laughs> of essentially the structure that I wanted to create for myself. And like these were the goals that I wanted. This was the industry I wanted to get my teeth into. And these were the things that I wanted to learn. This was basically my action plan for how I was gonna do it. And at the end of this imaginary grad school program that was free for myself, <laughs> there was a thesis project, and that was Millennial. So for those of you who don't know what Millennial is, it is a first-person narrative show about maneuvering your 20s post-graduation. So if you guys haven't listened, maybe you are the target audience for this. <laughs> what happens after college? How do you get to the place that you want to be? I think a lot of things that were going on during this talk is everybody was talking about the gap between where you are and where you want to be. And that's essentially what I was exploring with my microphone at the time. So knowing my background, I kind of want to just walk through when you have a show or you have an idea or you have a yeah, you have a podcast idea, or maybe you have a story idea, here are, here are some things to kind of be thinking about. To transform a project from something that's just in your head to something that can be tangible, to something that other people want to invest in. So my first thought is, 
Treat it like it's a small business. In my opinion, every show that exists is basically a small business. It has its own brand, it has its own budget, it has a mission statement, hopefully, and it, and it creates a product, right? So even if you're working in a network, like Carrie Ann and I, we pass each other at Gimlet, every single show was its own world. People at Reply All were not doing things that I was doing at The Habitat. I wasn't doing things that Carrie Ann was doing at GC, which is the Gimlet creative team. So it's almost like every single show is a small business. That's one thing. Um, the second thing is when you're creating your show, survey the industry. When I started Millennial, it was 2014, number one, there were about 250,000 podcasts out there. And now there's double that. Right, so you're really, not even you, everyone in this industry is pushing against everyone else. Everybody's trying to figure out how to break through, how to cut through the noise. And I feel like one of the things you can do is look at what's already out there. Like Michael, like, like a lot of people were saying, there are a lot of talk shows. What would happen if you, did an inverse of a talk show or like how can you make a talk show different or just what are the things that aren't there? I think for me at the time there weren't a lot of narrative driven memoir documentary podcasts which is why Millennial stood out. I think if I launched, if I launched Millennial now it would be a lot harder to break through the noise. But when we launched The Habitat which is a, a science-based show about space, there wasn't a show like that that existed. So even though it was backed by a network, it still comes from this root of there aren't as many competitors. And like with The Daily, there wasn't, there wasn't like a daily news cycle that had kind of in-depth reporting the way the New York Times packaged it. So even though, yes, people are backed by, by lots of resources, I think creators are also thinking about like, what exists? What doesn't exist? Something I'm always asking myself right now is, what do I want to listen to? What am I craving that I don't hear? Another thing in terms of this small business, right, is you have to create your product. So that is, that is what that is, right? You guys already have a show. You know how demanding that is. We talked about how do you, or, or some of the questions are like, how do you get into a workflow and how do you manage people? Like that all comes with creating this product. Create a budget. Once you have your first few episodes, and this is what I always tell people uh, in the very beginning, is create a number of episodes. Millennial didn't start getting recognition until I was five episodes in and I made one episode a month. So I was still working at L.L. Bean and <laughs> waitressing when people were all of a sudden listening to it. But create a budget. How much money does it take to buy a microphone? If you want to pay an editor, how much will that be? How much does a website cost? Like when you're creating your business, 
get those spreadsheets out <laughs> and start looking at how much, how much money it'll actually take. Because then you can also position yourself when you finally get in front of someone who wants to invest in you or who you want to invest in you, you can say, great, I've been crunching these numbers since I started. This is how much it'll, this is how much it'll cost. This is my dream team. This is how much that will cost. Where, 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 how can you help me? Another thing that I think is really important is thinking about who is your show being made for. And not in the broad sense of, I want everyone to listen to this, but in a very specific sense. So when I made Millennial, I was making it for one person. I was making it for my best friend. Hannah Cohen, and every single time I read copy and script, I was actually reading it to her. And what I have learned is that when your audience is really specific, because of the nature of audio, people either feel like you're talking directly to them or you're talking to someone you're talking to someone else and they're listening into a conversation they don't think that they should be listening to, right? Those are kind of like the two levels of intimacy where I think audio really shines. In this sense, like I was talking directly to my best friend and so the listener, people who listened felt like I was talking to them like they were my best friend. So I, I kind of like to challenge people who are creating shows, really thinking about who is, who is the person in your life who you're making this for? And when you have a very specific type of person, you'd be surprised that that umbrella actually widens. So once you have your product, once you have your specific audience and people like them are listening, the next thing I would encourage you to do is you have to release it all and collect data. So I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but podcasts notoriously have the worst analytics in, I don't want to, I mean, in, out of most mediums because there isn't one platform like there is with Google Analytics or just being online to be able to extract information. Instead, you have like all of these different platforms. So we had mentioned I think social media, like how do I balance social media with making this product? That's a part of having the small business, right? You just have to. When you are creating your website, have Google Analytics linked, start collecting this data across our, whatever your RSS feed is collecting, but then also what your social media is collecting and create a presentation with it. So. Basically, you have a product. You're pitching to people that you have an audience. Even if it's really, really small, it doesn't matter. Like the, the point is that you know. And then how do you present it in a way that will make someone regret saying no? And then the other thing is kind of similarly when you I think this applies to when you have story ideas and then also when you have a show. You want to know where the best fits will happen, 
right? So when you have a story idea and you're looking to pitch to different shows, you structure your story or you structure your pitch in a way that is, that's basically like, I've done so much research on your show that of course this is a good bet for you, right? So in that same way, it's like how, like what, what networks are out there? Which ones do you gravitate towards? Where do you see the holes in those networks? Basically, you're trying to put yourself in a position where you're saying, if you invest in me and in this show, this is gonna be beneficial to you. And when you pitch them, when you get in front of people and you pitch them, one thing that I heard, um, it was actually on the Startup Podcast. It was Chris Sacco was telling Alex Bloomberg like how to pitch. And one thing that he said that I have just sunk my teeth into and kept in my pocket is when you're talking to people, you have to have a vision that is beyond their seats. It's beyond them. So you have to feel like a, a fast moving train and if they don't get on it, they're just gonna miss out. And that's also knowing what it is that you want. And then, I'm corny, but I, you gotta love it. Because at the end of the day, it's gonna be you in a dark room, going through the dark forest, maybe by yourself, and if you don't, if you, like, if you don't love it, it won't be worth it. <laughs> so, Megan is my hero. Yes! I absolutely adore her. I also want to talk about how after her presentation, I go up to her and I say, what's your zodiac sign? She says, guess. I said, Virgo. She said, how did you know? Yes! <laughs> you are a queen. <laughs> this woman created an entire syllabus, a seven-page syllabus. For her for life. For her life. For herself. Yes. In which, you know, in meta, all this type of stuff, she was manifesting what she wanted. Mm. But she was giving herself a very strategic step-by-step, -step, this is what we're going to do this over the next. This is what I need to learn. This is what I need to learn. These are the opportunities I want to have and I'm therefore going to get. These are the and types of people that I need to meet. Yeah, it was just amazing and really, really interesting to hear and also really affirming because she talked about how she didn't have money to go to grad school, right? And sometimes when you're in a creative field, you feel like you need an edge mm -hmm. to really seem like you know what you're talking about, which can be through school. Mm -hmm. You know, we've had people on the show that have higher education degrees in creative fields. But for Megan to be candid and say, I couldn't afford it. So I created a plan for myself. It was like, whoa, that's so dope. Complete you know? with a thesis project. <laughs> that that for herself. <laughs> 400,000 downloads a month. That's amazing. Yeah. And she was just very, not nonchalant in a negative way, but nonchalant in that I wanted it. Yes. So I wrote it. And so I did it. Yes. Her piece coupled with Michael's piece were very poignant because, yes. again, it gives a very not stringent, but just gives you a very streamlined approach to creativity, mm -hmm. which almost seems like an oxymoron because when you think creativity, you think, oh, la la la, I've just found this idea and it's so brilliant. But then you have Michael and Megan who say, all right, and this is how we make it happen. This is how you hustle. This is how you hustle. And this is how you present your hustle to the world. Yes. And I think that's a fine note to leave this episode on. I feel like our listeners will be energized. Absolutely. And organized. And I feel like finding your way to hustle and present that hustle has been a theme. Yes. For our podcast this season. Right on. 
Oh my gosh, we'll have a great holiday season. I don't think we're going to see each other until the spring. This is it for LabCast until we reconvene in the next semester. Yeah, and so thank you all so much for listening to our episodes this far. For those who came out to the live event, we are very, very thankful for your support and we hope you keep listening. Thanks for listening to LabCast, brought to you by The Production Lab. Executive producer, Katie Shepard. Associate producer, Anna Van Dyne. Music by Abby T. Special thanks to Michael Garofalo, Megan Tan, and shout out to John Tintori.